Every morning that my wife has a day shift at King's College Hospital, I go downstairs while she puts on her uniform. About 6.25. Coffee mug goes on the counter. Granola in the mug. I wait to put the milk in until she trudges down to the living room so the granola doesn't get soggy. Spoon. And that's what she wants. And that's really what I have the mental fortitude to give her. As for me, I can't really think about stomaching food that soon after waking up. Coffee, yes. <laughs> food, no. I adore breakfast food. But I don't want to confront it until three hours after I've woken up. I am currently in the process of learning what my body can and cannot do when it comes to morning, since for the first time in London, I have an office job and a morning commute. I foolishly thought that most mornings I'd live by a when-in-Rome philosophy and grab a full English breakfast at the cafe around the corner from my office. A few hours after waking, of course. Uh, full English for takeaway? But I quickly discovered what the Romans, uh, the, the Brits, what they've known all their lives. Two fried eggs, two rashers of back bacon, a Cumberland sausage, a grilled portobello mushroom, four small tomatoes on the vine, a sizable bubble and squeak, and two slices of butter-drenched toast to mop up the lake of baked beans. It is not a morning energy booster. It's an indulgence. For me... Maybe a once-a-week indulgence? This week on Iconography, our first culinary icon. The full English. The fry-up. We're going to consider what it means for a national cuisine, one that finds itself frequently derided for its blandness, to be tied so obviously to a meal as fickle as subject to trends and whims, diets, advertising forces, and let's be honest, just plain old early morning laziness, as breakfast is. with Carolyn. This episode's icon is so real, the wife and I could make it in our kitchen. We could taste it. The bacon is just ham. It's fine. I the real starch are the beans and the mushrooms and the sausage. The sausage is very good. I love English back bacon. I like it more than American bacon. Carolyn and I had to make some decisions when purchasing the ingredients for our homemade full English breakfast. Black pudding or bubble and squeak? Black pudding. Big tomatoes or small? Small. We'll get into why. Mushrooms or no? Mushrooms. Heinz baked beans or one of the grocery store exclusive versions that most Brits think taste a lot better than Heinz. We went with Heinz. But these decisions pale in comparison to the decisions we'd have had to make if we were tackling the full English breakfast of 100 years ago. The kind of breakfast that would have been taken in the breakfast room at Downton Abbey, made by Mrs. Patmore and Daisy in the kitchens downstairs, watched over by Mr. Carson the butler since breakfasts were too informal to be staffed by footmen, taken by Mary and Edith and Lord Grantham in relative silence as each read their papers... At that time, breakfast could take any number of forms. 
Eggs, bacon, toast, and beans, sure, but that was a tiny percentage of what Mrs. Patmore might have churned out. The breakfast on the table would have been very real, but the ideal of the English breakfast it was aiming for, that wasn't a list of ingredients, that was a feeling. So before we can make the English breakfast of today, we need to capture that feeling. It had never occurred to me until researching the English breakfast, and yes, I did some research that didn't involve eating bacon, (laughs) that gentrification came from the word gentry, as in the English country gentleman. The child of nobles who makes it his goal, in lieu of becoming a knight and defending the kingdom, to preserve the traditions of old by eating like he's Beowulf. When we talked about gentrification in the Four Weddings and a Funeral episode, we were talking about places like Notting Hill and Islington that had been transformed over the years from vibrant, relatively affordable, working-class neighborhoods into upscale, white-collar way stations for people who commute into the city. From warehouses to warehouse office spaces, from greasy spoons to brunch destinations. And this arc is what sociologist Ruth Glass was describing when she coined the term in 1964. But before gentrification was something that happened to places, it was kind of something that happened to people. It was the act of trying to be like, of trying to become, the gentry. When trying to understand what the English gentry did for English cuisine, we have to break down one of the biggest culinary misconceptions of all time. British cuisine is simple. Fried, savory, salty, nothing you couldn't get from your standard-issue farm. It is so not French cuisine. Well, exactly. Can we come up and have a look? Of course not! You are English type, sir! Well, what are you, then? I'm French! Why do you think I have this outrageous accent, you silly king? What are you doing in England? Mind your own business! Maybe you've heard, but there is a bit of an ongoing rivalry between the British and the French. You don't frighten us, English pig dogs! Go and boil your bottom! This goes back a long way. I think there's this perception that the two neighbors, separated only by a swimmable channel, are so at odds because their cultures are so different. But what about this intriguing idea? Their cultures ended up so different because they were at odds. Conflict with the French isn't some external force that English culture weathers every once in a while. It's baked into the whole concept of an English culture. England had barely had time to cohere as an entity, something that could have a united culture that could tie together the many Anglo-Saxon kingdoms that had grown in the wake of the Romans' departure. As a culture, it was really still in its infancy when the Normans crossed the Channel in 1066 and took the crown. This wasn't some short incursion. This was centuries of English history, and it started right here. William the Conqueror and his Tower of London. The Conqueror spoke French, ate French, was French. This leads into the Age of Knights, knight deriving from an Anglo-Saxon word, and of Crusades and Richard the Lionheart, the great English king of yore, who in fact probably didn't speak English and barely spent any time in England. French royal family, French feasts of extraordinary proportions at the high court. And the subjects, the conquered, 
They had been just starting to grasp at something forged in the tempest of Viking invasion, something English, and it was taken away. That's the story, at least. The story people are telling themselves a century or so on, and in later centuries, this story will become more and more appealing. The Saxons living under the Norman yoke. It was, of course, more complicated than this. The Norman royals could be both respected, worshipped even, while still being resented as interlopers and interrupters. Eventually, Saxon descendants with enough money, status, and most importantly, free time, constructed their lives and homes as memorials, shrines basically, to Saxon days gone by, as recounted by Keoria O'Connor in her History of the English Breakfast. It was from among the knightly families that a new social group emerged who would be closely linked to the English Breakfast. These were the squires. Initially, fledgling knights or the descendants of knightly families who were unwilling or unable to take on the expense and responsibilities of knighthood, squires, who came to include the younger sons of titled families who had no title themselves, stood midway in status between nobles and commoners in a different way than merchants did. Squires and their families evolved into the peculiarly English institution called the gentry, who kept alive the traditional values, practices, and cuisine of the Anglo-Saxons and developed the unique English country lifestyle. As time went on, the squirearchy, or gentry, became lesser landowners, basing themselves in the countryside away from urban centers of power where they had little influence. Enjoying a fair degree of autonomy within their estates, the gentry could revive and maintain the traditional way of life that had been lost in the immediate aftermath of the conquest. This, more than increasing national prosperity, changes in grain prices, foreign wars, or advances in sheep husbandry, accounts for the strong identity that the country gentry had from the outset, which they consolidated by taking a generally inward-looking, quote, Little England perspective, intermarrying, involving themselves in local affairs, eating food prepared in the, quote, Old English manner, and indulging wholeheartedly in country ways and pursuits such as hunting. English cuisine, going back to its origins, isn't accidentally simple, like its first practitioners were too lazy to do anything more than fry pig parts. Simplicity was part of the plan. It was a statement. A very dignified middle finger to the Frenchified ruling class. The Anglo-Saxon ideal these gentry were striving for may have been half fiction, maybe more, but it meant a lot to them. Now, throw in another six centuries of forgotten details and French resentment, plus a dash of uh, scary Corsican emperor, <laughs> and it actually becomes fiction, which doesn't make the notion of simple English cuisine as act of rebellion any less potent. Far better was our homely diet, eaten in peace and liberty, than the luxurious dainties, the love of which hath delivered us as bondsmen to the foreign conqueror. This is Cedric the Saxon, a character in Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe, an 1819 novel set back in the 13th century that's had a major influence on subsequent depictions of Robin Hood, King Richard the Lionheart, and his dastardly brother John. But that quote sort of also aptly describes England in the wake of the French Revolution in 1819, in the thrall of French chefs living in exile as revered celebrities. The canonization of French cuisine had begun, and 
Well, we still worship at its holy altar today. Taste is a funny sort of word, especially when it applies to food. Because on one level, we actually taste food. It's one of the five senses and all that. Apart from any other associations, when food touches your tongue, science happens, and a combination of flavors tells your brain whether you are having a pleasant experience or an unpleasant one. But on another level, food is a marker of taste, and is marked by it. When food touches your tongue, psychology and sociology happen, and learned associations make us taste things that aren't coming from the food. They're coming from how eating the food makes us feel. Never forget, food is fashion. Kale, as an example, does not taste better than it did 15 years ago, but eating kale is now more tasteful. Food itself can't taste fancy or cheap or exotic, but where we're eating it, what we paid for it, what it looks like, and what other people think of it make our brains feel those things vividly. How else do we explain this? Among the world's most coveted ingredients are snails, fish eggs, and shaved fungi. While many people can't fathom eating grasshoppers, sardines, or, in the case of the English breakfast, that little black puck spotted with white flecks. Oh yeah, that's real. That is real intestine. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to eat that. You've, you've eaten it before. I've taken a bite of yours before. Carolyn is squirming as I peel the casing, in this case a tied segment of intestine, away from the blood sausage that was cooked inside it. To be honest, it is a pretty weird sensation. Slimy? The sausage that's left behind, which is dried blood cooked with fat and spices and thickened with oats, holds perfectly firm without its casing. This is a very old way of making sure that all the blood from a slaughter doesn't go to waste. Blood spoils quickly, but if it's cooked... It can hold through the winter. Make no mistake, many Brits are just as weirded out by black pudding as Americans are. If they were brought up on it, they tend to love it, but fewer and fewer kids have been. Until recently, that is, when the downturn in the economy saw an uptick in sales for black pudding. Because, as it would have been in Saxon times, it's affordable and available, and it's harder to let any part of the animal go to waste. I also happen to think it's pretty darn tasty. I slice the black pudding and throw it in the frying pan to reheat. It's remarkable that of all the fascinating meat byproducts one might have for breakfast, this is the one that survived. A reminder of a Victorian feast in which anything that came from an animal was fair game. As breakfast food. Why would anybody ever eat anything besides breakfast food? People are idiots, Leslie. Mm. Breakfast is odd. It is not human nature to eat immediately upon waking up. You can tell because for most of history, humans did not do it. Even well into the common era years, actually, especially in those years because Christianity saw three meals a day as gluttony, which, as you'll recall, is one of the seven deadly sins, People simply did not eat until midday unless they had an especially laborious job, in which case they might 
fortify themselves in the morning with bread or porridge. And really, you don't have to work too hard to see why breakfast was either meager or non-existent. We haven't changed much in the 21st century. Pop-tarts and power bars are the bread and porridge of modern times, scarfed down by people who must have something to eat before they walk out the door. And brunch is the mid-morning feast of people with a bit more time on their hands. And yet, despite these cultural monoliths, brunch and bars, crushing breakfast from either side, the idea of a solid, hearty breakfast like the one Carolyn and I are preparing in our kitchen today persists. So, all right, so what's all the things we're making? All right, well, we've got bread over to the side. We've got Heinz uh, five beans, so baked beans. We have eggs, obviously, and bacon, obviously. We have Cumberland sausage. This sounds like a lot of ingredients already, and we still have three more. <laughs> um, we have the blood sausage. It's black pudding. And then the last two ingredients are our veggies. We have mushrooms and we have some tomatoes. I have a lot of opinions. Why are these the foods that, when gathered together, give us the full English breakfast? Why are some of them, eggs especially, so tied to breakfast in Western culture to the point of looking out of place in any other meal? And why are some of them, beans especially, so specifically English? Each of these ingredients tells a fascinating story about what breakfast has been to the English and what it still is despite all odds. It's had to weather shifts in gender norms, wartime rationing, the loss of the servant class, and the incredible advertising acumen of vegetarians. But the most remarkable thing of all isn't that it survived, but that it ever lived in the first place. Just look at the word breakfast. Break fast. Today, we think of breakfast as breaking the inadvertent fast we undertake when we sleep. The fast is a side effect of sleeping, and it's best to break it as soon as possible. You know, get the metabolism going. But the fast in breakfast was a real fast, a religious observance, and waiting to break it was seen as a mark of strength and virtue. Breaking your fast was just what it sounds like, lamentable, something to avoid. In an Atlantic article called The Most Contentious Meal of the Day, Megan Garber says, The Europeans of the Middle Ages largely eschewed breakfast. Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica lists prea prepare, eating too soon, as one of the ways to commit the deadly sin of gluttony. The eating of a morning meal following that logic was generally considered to be an affront against God and the self. Fasting was seen as evidence of one's ability to negate the desires of the flesh. The ideal eating schedule from that perspective was a light dinner, then consumed at midday, followed by a heartier supper in the evening. What really broke breakfast wide open wasn't anything Carolyn and I will be eating. Instead, we have to move over to the kettle to hear what brought the Catholic Church to its knees and made breakfast the peak of fashion. Coffee, tea, and their forgotten third sibling, chocolate, transformed the notion of breakfast. Tea, you won't have any trouble associating with the British, I know. I remember the time we had lazy late mornings. Sadly, no longer. So here's how I prepare an invigorating English breakfast to awaken the senses. Twining's English breakfast tea is a full-bodied concoction. Tea first made its way to the island in the 1600s, but it was too expensive to gain much traction in its first century, at least in comparison to coffee and chocolate. As for coffee, the Enlightenment probably couldn't have happened without it. 
Just imagine society switching in mass from drinking ale all day, because water was, like, not safe, to drinking coffee all day. A lot of good work got done. But it was drinking chocolate that really rocked the 17th century. It's noted in Heather Arndt Anderson's Breakfast of History that chocolate, quote, caused such an ecstatic uproar among Europe's social elite that the Catholic Church began to feel the pressure to change the rules. The new rules? Liquidum non frangit jejunum. That's Cardinal Francis Maria Brancaccio in 1662 throwing up his arms in acquiescence. Liquid doesn't break the fast. And if you listen hard enough, you hear him saying, Fine already, shut up about chocolate. Religions had a bigger impact on the English breakfast than you might realize. It will surprise you little to hear that the Puritans of the 1600s thought the way that most Englishmen took breakfast was too lavish. Well, a mark of their simple approach to food and of their religiosity actually still shows up in the English breakfast today. Puritan settlers in Massachusetts encountered Native Americans cooking beans with animal fat and maple syrup. They discovered that with some adaptation, subbing in pork and molasses, they had their perfect Sabbath day meal. Since they could not cook on Sunday, they needed something they could make Saturday night that could keep in a warm stove overnight and into the next day. Baked beans were the perfect salve for a cold Boston Sunday. Through the transitive property, you can see why cowboys end up as associated with molasses-style beans as Boston, by the way. It's just the perfect dish to make in a Dutch oven or over a fire that can still be eaten the next day. So baked beans are quintessentially American, Native American even. But beans for breakfast? If you presented an American with beans on toast... He or she might likely wonder why you had ruined a perfectly good piece of toast. Even so, once again, it's an American that we have to thank for Britain's obsession with canned oh, beans. We should put the beans on hot. Yes, canned beans. So I thought about making our own baked beans, basically taking some non-sauced beans and cooking them in a tomato sauce. But essentially everyone tells you that Baked beans with breakfast in Britain means canned beans. In this case, the American is Henry J. Hines, the Pennsylvania entrepreneur who started Hines in 1876 with his brother and his cousin. Well, started again. His first foodstuffs company had already gone bankrupt. In 1886, the Hines company offloaded five cases of tinned beans to luxury food purveyor Fortnum & Mason, which has been going strong on Piccadilly for 310 years. Now, we may not think of beans in a tin as particularly luxurious today, but in 1886, tinning was relatively new, and this was the first time people would have seen beans preserved in a can. Novelty breeds luxury, as the decision-makers who've kept Fortnum's in business for over three centuries very well know. All right, fine, fine, fine. But why breakfast? Why does every English breakfast come swimming on a lake of Auburn sauce? Well, on a practical level, British beans bathe a hearty breakfast less intrusively than American beans ever could, which comes down to Heinz understanding what Brits use their beans for. American beans, Heinz or no, use brown sugar and smoked bacon. They're sweet, barbecue food. In Britain, baked beans use a savory tomato sauce base. 
This is actually a running theme in the English breakfast, savory over sweet. British sausage, known colloquially as bangers since the First World War, it's far less sweet than its American cousin, which tends to emphasize hints of maple and which is called breakfast sausage because it would taste really out of place away from pancakes. Bangers and mash work so well because a juicy Cumberland or Lincolnshire sausage is going to be herbaceous. It wants to sit in gravy or tomatoey bean sauce, not maple syrup. But uh, flavor profiles can only get you so far. Plenty of things have tasted heaven-sent without ever amounting to a hill of beans culturally. Remember, though, there are two kinds of taste. There's the one that tells you whether something is too savory or too sweet. And then there's the one that sets off alarm bells if you are behaving too differently from the rest of society. Or society as you perceive it, as it is dictated to you. Because actually understanding all of society would be tilting at windmills. We can only really process the juicy bits. Advertising gives us the juicy bits. Before I researched this episode, if you had come up to me and said, Beans means... And left the question mark hanging there, I would have likely corrected your grammar. But say it to just about anyone in the UK, and they know perfectly well what beans means, even if they're loyal to their own supermarket's brand of beans. They know that beans means Heinz. Fifty years ago, Heinz was fighting back every supermarket chain's knockoff beans. Maurice Drake was the ad man in charge of changing the message. Heinz felt we should point out that they were the original and best, but saying that is not easy as it's a bit hackneyed. We tried all sorts of things for a month or so. We were a bit stuck, so as I was the head of the group, I took the team down to the Victoria, behind the agency in Mornington Crescent, where we sat around with beer and sandwiches. I had my layout pad with me, and fiddling with it, I came up with Beans Means Heinz. I also came up with a jingle. A million housewives every day open a can of beans and say, Beans Means Heinz. When would Johnny be back from going around the world? Mm, Not till well after tea, I suppose. We might as well eat his beans then. (laughs) I think I'll go around the world tomorrow instead. A million housewives every day pick up a tin of beans and say, Beans Means Heinz. So, about that housewives line... By 1967, gender norms surrounding breakfast and everything were already, thankfully, bucking like a bronco. But what was great for women was not necessarily great for massive homemade breakfasts as an institution. The entire notion of breakfast, especially once the Industrial Revolution kicked into gear, had been predicated upon two assumptions. One, that a wife's top priority was ensuring the happiness and success of her husband, and two, that she probably had a cook and some servants at her back to make sure she never had to lift a spoon to do that. The age of the Victorian breakfast, a truly massive table-buckling affair that would have made a Puritan die, was struck a bunch of blows in quick succession in the early 20th century. This is actually the arc we see play out in Downton Abbey the last gasps of the country manor-owning gentry and the way that that group's obsolescence was exacerbated and accelerated by a world war. Upward mobility meant that servants like Gwen Harding, Tom Branson, and Mrs. Patmore found their way out of the servant class. And young women like Sybil and Edith pushed boundaries by seeking employment, not because they needed it, but because it brought them fulfillment. So then who was in the kitchen preparing elaborate platters of fish and venison and sweetbreads for breakfast? Yeah, precisely. 
enter the Americans and their advertising. I'm smart. I'm grapple. I'm pop. We've covered in depth already how English cuisine developed as a sort of dignified middle finger to the French. The cuisine has likely persisted because the finger, rather than folding back away after World War I, was turned towards an even more insidious invader. The young, powerful former colony across the Atlantic that threatened to attack where it really mattered. The wallet. According to Kaori O'Connor, Throughout the 1920s, the growing taste for all things modern and American made the English breakfast seem very old-fashioned, although, to its partisans, that was its very appeal. On the table, the greatest enemies were grapefruit and packaged cereals, both American imports. Grapefruit was widely believed to burn away fat, helping women to achieve the newly fashionable slender silhouette. Convenience was the real advantage of packaged cereals, but it was sold as a health food, so wives serving it to husband and family need not feel guilty at giving them short shrift, and it often had a hidden moral agenda. The American brothers Will and John Kellogg, whose eponymous company went on to invent and produce the world's most famous breakfast cereals, were ardent supporters of vegetarianism. Alright, before we chuckle at the naivete of British housewives, led to believe that cereal would trim their waistlines by Seventh-day Adventists with ulterior vegetarian-related motives. Think about how you've been preconditioned to think of breakfast. You are not immune to all of this. Advertising has played a bigger role in deciding what you think of as breakfast than you might think. For example, 100 years ago, Americans would probably not have been as inclined to associate bacon and eggs with breakfast as you probably are. Allow Edward Bernays, 1920s advertising guru and nephew of Sigmund Freud, by the way, to explain what he did to change that. We made a research and found out that the American public ate very light breakfasts of coffee, maybe a roll, and orange juice. We went to our physician, found that a... A heavy breakfast was sounder from the standpoint of health than a light breakfast because the body loses energy during the night and needs it during the day. We asked the physician, would he be willing at no cost to write to 5,000 physicians and ask them whether their judgment Uh, was the same as his, confirmed his judgment. We got about 4,500 answers. All of them concurred that a heavy breakfast was better for the health of the American people than a light breakfast. Newspapers throughout the country had headlines saying 4,500 physicians urge heavy breakfast in order to improve health of American people. Many of them stated that bacon and eggs should be embodied with the breakfast, and as a result, the sale of bacon went up. And I still have a letter from Bartlett Arkell, president of Beechnut Packing Company, telling me so. What you can't see is that um, towards the end there, the aged Bernays, as he's fondly remembering the way that he fundamentally transformed uh, 
how the Western world sees breakfast is smiling like the cat that ate the canary or um, the canary's egg, as it were. I suspect Mr. Bernays understood perfectly well that scientific rigor may not have been strictly adhered to when it came to championing the health benefits of bacon. Just give me all the bacon and eggs you have. Wait, wait. I worry what you just heard was, give me a lot of bacon and eggs. What I said was, give me all the bacon and eggs you have. While the American breakfast was taking shape, thanks to Mr. Bernays as well as Mr. Kellogg and, let's not forget, Mrs. Crocker, the English breakfast was about to face its biggest challenge yet, and it wouldn't come out the other side unscathed. The full English had flourished in opposition to the French, and it had weathered an onslaught of American goods that took advantage of the need for quick and easy solutions now that there were fewer cooks and fewer women willing to stay in the kitchen and do all the cooking. The one thing it couldn't survive, though, not completely intact, was the German blitz. Preceded by a shower of flares, German bombers rained fire and high-explosive bombs in their most savage attack on London. Here again is the blood, the sweat and tears that Nazi warfare brings to the men, women and children of cities. Because the survival to that point of the English breakfast as an ideal, plates overflowing with the spoils of yesterday's hunt, fortifying the man for this day's hunt, that was predicated upon the luxury of choice. The choice of mountains of bacon over dainty French hors d'oeuvres. The choice of labor-intensive tradition over the latest American diet trends. But the Nazis removed choice. The choice Carolyn and I are making now as we lay that beautiful back bacon into the frying pan. This cut of meat was one of the biggest and most delightful surprises when I came over to Britain. Asking for bacon and getting this beautiful paper-thin pork chop rather than a crispy streak of pork belly. What we call bacon in America, what is legally bacon according to the FDA, to the exclusion of any other cut of meat, including the British cut of bacon, it can occasionally be brilliant, I admit it. But there's so much room for error. There's so little purchase between being too limp and fatty and being burnt beyond all recognition. I may end up with my citizenship provoked for saying this, but the British idea of bacon is truly the best of all worlds. Cut from the side of the pig, from the back, down to the belly, it gives you multiple mouthfuls of salty, smoky meat with a wonderful tail of succulent fat. To say the least, I've grown quite attached to it. The fact is, from very early on in World War II, and remember, Britain joined the war years before America did, I would have had to learn to live without it. Rationing will give everyone, rich and poor alike, an equal share of all that's going. The only two things which it is now necessary to ration are bacon, which includes ham and butter. As early as 1940, a food writer like Ambrose Heath was writing cookbooks specifically targeted at keeping grand breakfast traditions alive in spite of wartime rationing. The lack of bacon has disturbed our native breakfast dish and brought doubt and distress into many an early morning kitchen. He said the purpose of his book, Good Breakfast, was to help to dispel those two concomitants of wartime and still to promote what Isaac Walton called a good, honest, wholesome, hungry breakfast. 
Bacon was soon joined in the penalty box by fresh eggs and butter, the core components of what the English considered breakfast to be. And they stayed rationed for nearly a decade after the end of the war, meaning an entire generation learned to get on with substitutes or with an entirely different breakfast routine. Tastes changed. Pretty much the only things a Brit could have unrestrictedly during the war were veggies that could be grown in their own garden. Which is where, I suspect, though I've been unable to confirm this, mushrooms and tomatoes gained their permanent foothold in breakfasting traditions. Both would have been present in the Victorian breakfast spread, I've seen them mentioned in cookbooks from the time, but they would have never been emphasized. The thinking was that vegetables weren't <laughs> worth the effort it took to chew them health-wise. So, the Victorians would have been aghast to know that only seven or so of their myriad breakfast components would survive to the present day, and veggies would be two of those components. On a personal note, I have to agree with them when it comes to the tomato. And this comes from someone who likes tomatoes just fine, it's, but it's, it's the one element of the fry-up I do not get. I, I understand that it's the only truly sweet element on the plate, but does it have to be this big boiling volcano of acid sweetness ready to scald whoever approaches it with either mouth or fork? <sighs> Sorry, I'm, I'm alright. <laughs> I'm experimenting with it. My local cafe has inspired a nifty twist that Carolyn and I incorporate into our own homemade fry-up. They do this, these little vine-ripened tomatoes. But is that the way you're supposed to do it? They do it. It's a real English <laughs> greasy spoon, and it works really well. Sitting down to partake in our feast, I still think I could do without the tomato, but I do vastly prefer these little bite-sized pellets of sweetness. Carolyn is still not a fan. It's still a tomato. It's fine. The point is, there are still choices to be made in the English breakfast. This is still a meal with a lot of components, and each offers a variety of preparations to consider. And we haven't even touched on things like bubble and squeak, a fried bundle of leftover veggies, or on the variants that surround beans, eggs, and bacon with unique regional touches, like the Scottish breakfast, which might include tatty scones and haggis, or the Irish, with its soda bread and white pudding, or the Welsh, with laver bread, which is a fried puree of seaweed and oatmeal. But the fact remains that this idea of the full English once filled entire cookbooks. So impossible was it to narrow down the scope of the English breakfast to anything that didn't need chapter numbers. The English breakfast was more than a menu item. It was the feeling of endless possibilities for breakfast, of presenting a wide assortment of meat and fish and bread and eggs in a simple, unpretentious manner that would drive the French batty. And now, it's a bit of a museum installation. You, you have to keep the exhibit pure for the nostalgists, nothing too extreme. And you have to keep the plaque simple for the tourists. Dietary trends, societal shifts, and wartime rationing dealt the full English so many blows that it stopped growing and changing, stopped being truly full. What remains is merely one notion of what a full English could mean. A notion pooled from the cafes that kept on churning out fry-ups to workers when the meal's popularity waned. But there's hope. It just comes from a place that many breakfast lovers consider enemy territory. <laughs> Brunch is an easy punching bag these days. And there is something nefarious about the market forces behind its spread. And the way that that spread goes pretty much hand-in-hand -hand with, to bring things full circle, gentrification. 
But because brunch is still a wild frontier where just about any ingredient is still fair game, as long as it's paired with hollandaise sauce, he says snidely, even though he loves hollandaise sauce. And because brunch can be served for most of the day, meaning chefs might put more time into innovating their brunch menu than their breakfast menu, which is exposed to customers for much less time, there is a chance that the English breakfast, or really, the English breakfasts of tomorrow are English brunches. Uh, now, I, I know, this may sound like sacrilege, but imagine showing the gentry of the 17th century both options. Behind door number one, a relaxed late morning repast that changes depending on the whims of the cook. And behind door number two, an early morning meal consisting of the same seven ingredients every day. They'd pick door number one. The mid-morning meal with the varying menu, it's what they'd know. And that's what I hope I got across this episode. Something that we believe to be ageless, fundamental to our being, the first of three meals, the fast breaker, is not that old at all in the grand scheme of things. Breakfast is younger than we think, and the current form breakfast has taken on, early morning, eggs and bacon, that's even younger than that. Most of the phenomena that transformed breakfast into its modern form all happened within the last century. And that's fine. Change has happened, and hopefully it will continue to happen. Think about it this way. Breakfast is still an adolescent, and we expect adolescents to grow in fits and starts and to change in unexpected ways. They're good for us, aren't they? Heinz beans? Yes, they are. They make us strong, grow fast. Yes, they do. That's all for this episode of Iconography. I sincerely hope that I didn't give you uh, an uncontrollable craving for some English delicacy that you're going to have a hard time finding, like uh, back bacon or English-style baked beans. That said... uh, I feel that you've put in the hard work studying, so treat yourself to a hearty breakfast, you know? You've earned it. (laughs) And while you're enjoying it, uh, if you happen to enjoy this podcast, please uh, go to iTunes and rate and review Iconography. It really does help to get the word out. Keep an eye on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash iconographypodcast, for updates on the next episode. I'm still sort of settling my life around the new job that I mentioned at the top of the episode. My goal at this point is to have the next episode up in three weeks on Sunday, May 14th. But follow the Facebook page for announcements related to the topic and any potential changes in the... Yes, we are